Brexit is a part of our lives, unfortunately, and will continue to be a part of our lives for the foreseeable future, whether you are a British or UK citizen or a European citizen or a concerned investor on the JSC Securities Exchange. I think someone who is all of those things is Chris Gilmore, independent investment analyst. Chris, you've been in Scotland recently, the country of your birthplace and your ancestors, and the feeling of disgruntlement is palpable, particularly in Scotland, because they went 62-38 to remain, I think it was. That's that's correct, Lindsay. No, you're quite right. But throughout the UK, it's been a terribly, terribly divisive event. And I, I put the blame for this squarely at the foot of um, David Cameron, the former prime minister. Thank you. Because I think what, what he... What he wanted to do was to heal divisions within the Conservative Party, because the Conservative Party for decades now has been full of Eurosceptics who don't really want to be there. I mean, many Brits were very reluctant participants in the EU. And I think if you look over the past few decades, since 1973, when they first entered, you know, they, they had major, major concessions relative to ma many other countries within the EU. And yet, you know, he put this question to them. What he also should have done, in my humble opinion, uh, rather than having a 50 percent uh, level, he should have said for something as constitutionally uh, important as this, he should have set the barrier at, at least 60 or 65 percent, not a, a simple majority. Anyway, it's all water under the bridge now. And what you've got is you had a result of 52, 48, 52 to leave and 48 to remain. Yeah. And as I say, terribly, terribly divisive. Um, most polls now, from what I can gather, are suggesting that um, if you were to, to, to do it on the basis of what people know, because at the time of the, the referendum back in June 2016, there was a lot of hype and a lot of nonsense put about, especially by chaps like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, suggesting that uh, Britain was paying £350 million a week into the, the, the EU's coffers, which is absolute nonsense. Rubbish, yeah. Um, you know, so uh, the trouble was, you know, it, it, a lot of people sucked into that. The other thing... And I, I recommend this as essential viewing to anybody who's got a virtual private network. It's on Channel 4, and it, it stars a fellow called Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, it's called um, Brexit, an Uncivil War. And it aired about two weeks ago. And it gives you a fantastic, I mean, a wonderful insight into what actually went on by a fellow called Dominic Cummings, who headed the, the Leave campaign. They used a company in Canada called Aggregate IQ, which used things like uh, Facebook entries. They ended, I won't bore you with the technical details, but what they did is they managed to find an extra 3 million people who, would, who wouldn't actually have gone and voted. People who were disillusioned, who probably weren't even working, and who they picked up the preferences from things like Facebook entries and stuff like that. They sent out a billion flyers, one billion. And that's how they managed to mobilize that disgruntled vote, which managed to get them over the line to get this to, to squeak in. And when, when I hear these politicians in Britain saying, well, it's the will of the people, it's nothing of the kind. If you actually analyze the figures, something like, what, 27, 28% of the total possible electorate actually voted to leave. So that's why I say it really should have been something along the lines of, of at least a 65% vote if it was going to be really meaningful. But as I say, it's all water under the bridge now. And what we're, we're looking at now is a filthy dog's breakfast. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible mess. It really um, is. And, and it, it goes on and on. And it's become more messy. Yes. I received yes. a letter the other day because currently I'm living in the Netherlands. And it said, dear Mr. Williams, you know, you will be OK until July the 1st, 2020. And if nothing happens between now and then, unfortunately, you've got to get out. 
and as a UK EU passport holder. And I think to myself, well, wait a second. This is unbelievable. What was Cameron thinking of when he did that? Was it some kind of ego trip to say, you know, everybody is, is voting for me? I just don't understand it. And I do think that it has been manipulated by social media, whether it be Russia, whether it be the Canadian firm that you've just spoke of. But it seems to be going on more and more. Cambridge Analytica is another story. It's quite a disturbing yes. trend, Chris Gilmore. It is. And, you know, as I say, the same thing I think happened with Donald Trump in the US. They managed to reawaken people in the Rust Belt states, people who hadn't voted for years. They were, they were despondent, disillusioned, but enough of them came out to actually vote for Trump. So a similar thing has happened in the UK as far as that referendum is concerned. So what you're seeing now is a situation, and, and you've put your finger on it, Lindsay, you're talking about far from being an improvement in democracy, democracy actually breaking down. Mm. You're now getting this standoff between government and parliament. Parliament is looking like the last bastion of, of defense in this whole thing. And thank goodness for people like the speaker in the form of John Burko, who, who has allowed a, a lot of amendments to go through. Uh, and also thanks uh, to a woman called Gina Miller, who um, a few years ago said parliament has to have the last say in all of this. So, you know, we've got this terrible standoff between the people on the, the leave side who are really, if you listen to their arguments, they're pretty hollow. All, all that we hear about is taking back control or we want our sovereignty back and all this kind of thing. What they're not talking about is, you, as you just mentioned, uh, you'll no longer have the free movement of people within the EU. And that's going to be particularly hard on the younger generation. You're no longer going to have um, frictionless trade. And let me give you a classic example. Jaguar Land Rover uh, have recently signaled their intention to move out of the UK and move to Slovakia. Why? Because because of the, their just-in-time uh, supply chain management, they can no longer guarantee that in the event of something breaking down, they can actually get that part quickly, effortlessly, seamlessly, frictionlessly from the EU. The trouble with the Leave people is that they don't seem to quite understand that over the past 45 years that Britain's been a member of the, of the EU or the EEC before that, over those years it's become intrinsically involved with the organisation. And you might not like it, but the only way you can change it is, is from within. You can, you, can, you can make it evolve. Going out and leaving and going after these wonderful um, trade deals that Dr. Liam Fox has apparently got up his sleeve. Of 40 trade deals he said he was going to get two years ago, he's got precisely none. <laughs> so I think, you know, the Leave campaign, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, can I put it, uh, there's a lot of ego trips here. People saying, well, it's, 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 it's very much this little Englander type of thing. You know, it, it's, they're in search of, of lost empire. They're saying, well, we can do it. You know, they just give us a chance. Yes, the economic growth won't be as good in the next 10 years. In fact, the Office for National Statistics and, and others have said that over the next 10 years, the UK will probably grow at a cumulative 17% as against 25% if they stayed in the UK. So it's a terribly, terribly stubborn approach that says it's going to be better. It's going to be more expensive. Your flexible labor that you currently enjoy with the Poles, Romanians, and the Slovaks, particularly coming and working at relatively 
cheap rates in the UK is going to disappear almost overnight uh, after the 29th of it's March. It's going to be disastrous anyway. Cameron and Gove and Johnson, how dare you? You're mischievous to the extreme. Now, as an independent investment analyst, of course, you're looking at this situation and licking your lips and despairing at the same time. You're saying to yourself, there are going to be opportunities. There are going to be stocks that will be beaten up because, not because they're not good businesses, but because there is no demand. Everybody is frozen, just like they are in South Africa at the moment, ahead of the May election. Everyone is frozen in the UK. There must be some things you're looking at, Chris Gilmore. Um, if you're looking at it from a, a South African perspective in terms of dual-listed stocks, for example, yes, um, that, that, could, that could be a bit problematic because I think the pound will weaken considerably if and when Britain finally does crash out without a deal on the 29th of March. Now, if that happens, so companies like BAT, for example, I think will suffer because the, the pound will weaken considerably. Investec PLC and, and Investec itself, maybe maybe not quite, quite so bad. And one or two other of those dual-listed stocks. There aren't as many dual-listed as, as there used to be. But then again, looking as specifically at the UK, yeah, it's, it's difficult to, to, to get enthusiastic about it. I mean, the, the whole retail sector is, is completely bombed. Yeah. The figures came out this morning. You know, um, people are just not buying. They're holding off. The manufacturing side, and this is one of the great tragedies. If you want to look at the car manufacturing side, last year, Britain produced more cars than at any other time in its history. Look, they didn't own any of the car companies that manufacture vehicles in the UK. Well, virtually none of them. But that doesn't matter. You know, providing big jobs, a lot of that is going to disappear very, very rapidly. So where are the investment opportunities in that sector? Difficult to see where, where they're going to be. And it all comes back, I think, to a, a UK consumer that's going to be progressively more and more cash strapped. So to try and find those opportunities that you're talking about, Lindsay, yes, and I think there, there will be some, but I think you're going to have to employ an awful lot of lateral thinking to find them. Okay, cash-strapped consumers has rung a bell with me because although we were uh, ostensibly talking about Brexit for the whole of this interview, I have now to come back to South Africa because we're all cash-strapped here. And I don't know, maybe we are saving up, maybe our household balance sheet is looking better than it was a year ago because we haven't been spending it. The same with the corporates. What do you think about South Africa? You go between two different continents, two completely different cultures and lifestyles, etc. But when you go back to South Africa, what do you see? Yeah, um, look, I, I think there are certain reasons to, to be a little bit more cheerful uh, this year. But a lot of that is predicated on what kind of situation is going to eventuate after the May elections, to which you alluded a few moments ago. Mm -hmm. I think if Cyril Ramaphosa and his ANC get back into power with uh, around about 60% of the vote, then um, Cyril will feel empowered to make some of the necessary changes, some of the purges that are required within the, the party. Um, but that isn't going to be enough. You know, it's, it's, going to be, it's going to take a long, long time to repair the damage that has been inflicted upon this economy by the former administration. It, it's been largely hollowed out. So getting things like ESCOM back onto a sure footing, very, very difficult. It's, you know, I think, unfortunately, there's still too much um, political dogma within the ANC. The inability to, to, to grasp the nettle of looking at proper privatization splitting up Eskom into its three component parts, privatize them. There's no real demand for the electricity generating side of it, but I think there'd be great demand in terms of the distribution and transmission side from the private sector. So they could raise a lot of money there if they could only swallow their pride and start thinking, instead of being stuck in a kind of 1970s socialist mire, mm -hmm. expanding their, their visions, their viewpoints a bit, and being a bit more lateral there. 
So that, I think, uh, may come to some sort of fruition after the elections. Uh, what is lacking at this point in time is growth. And stumbling along at around about 1% to 1.5% is nowhere near adequate. And I think if you look at the companies on the JSE that rely on South Africa you know, for its growth, the retailers and the banks, for example, they're in a pretty sorry state. I've got a column coming out in Business Day on Wednesday. Yes. And I make the point that in the almost 40 years that I've covered the retail sector, I've never seen it in anything like the sorry state in which I see it today across the board. There have been instances where certain companies have been looking a bit bit rough. But uh, no, everyone is really fighting for that extra rand out there. And it's really, it's the most difficult time I've ever seen. The banks are taking it, uh, they've got a, a major problem. They're taking strain on two fronts. One, because of a phenomenon called fintech with smaller companies uh, snapping at their heels. And on the other side, there's just this lack of demand out there that we've mentioned. So the banks are looking very, very cheap indeed. But it could be a bit of a trap because if this economy doesn't grow, then you're not really going to get the kind of mortgage growth that you think should be available. You're not going to get people to borrow as much. You made the point, Lindsay, that household balance sheets are looking better, and I think they are. I mean, your household debt to disposal income has come down considerably in recent years. It's still quite high, but it's nowhere near the levels it was uh, a few years ago. So, yes, I think there is more propensity, uh, more... To, to spend, but the, the appetite is perhaps lacking a bit. What it needs is a bit more political uh, calm. And I think, again, Cyril will, will try to deliver that after, after the May elections. So I think so much hinges on the May elections. If, on the other hand, you get a result that is very different to that, if you get the ANC only limping home with maybe 52 or 53%, then I think he could be in serious trouble. I think his position could well be in jeopardy. Gosh, what a lot to digest, but fascinating stuff, Chris. We'll speak very soon, I hope, uh, about Brexit and the South African situation. That's Chris Gilmore, Independent Investment Analyst.